The resurrection has always generated a lot of questions. People have wrangled with theological questions uh, since the very beginning. But this morning, I thought we would take a look at some of the questions that were actually asked on that first morning. They weren't abstract theological ones, as vitally as important as abstract theological questions are. They really are important. But the questions asked on that first morning were pragmatic. They were life-in-the-moment questions. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? And why are you crying? And why are you looking for the dead or for the living among the dead? So let's take those three questions and think about them for the next few minutes. The first one was this. Who will roll the stone away? That was asked by some of Jesus' friends on their way to the tomb in order to complete the Jewish burial rites. At some point, as the women walked toward the garden tomb, one of them remembered that great stone that was partially buried in the ground and too heavy for them to budge. They remembered that it might now be blocking the entrance to the tomb. And they must have worried themselves sick over it, for in the original language, St. Mark uses an imperfect tense verb to inform us that the women didn't just ask this question once. They kept asking it over and over again. What are we going to do about the stone? Who's going to roll the stone away? Their concern, as we know, turned out to be needless on more than one level. But as they walked toward the tomb on the morning of the resurrection, they couldn't get their minds off that stone. For them, it was an insurmountable obstacle. So they worried and they fretted and they kept talking about it, even though it was no longer there. I suspect that God frequently finds me doing the same kind of thing. I set out to do something for him, but inevitably think of some obstacle and fret myself over it for nothing. And all the time, God knows that when I reach that point where the obstacle lies, he'll already have taken care of it. And so it was for the woman. All that worry for nothing. But when they looked up, this is St. Mark's account, when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Question, answer, obstacle removed by the resurrection of Jesus. Then there was the poignant question Asked twice, once by an angel and once by the Lord himself, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Both times the question was addressed to Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus had rescued from a nightmarish, demonized, painful past. When she met Jesus, her whole life changed. Her mental anguish, her shame her fear was removed. Her guilt was lifted. She was forgiven much, and consequently, she loved much. She loved Jesus. Upon his death, the death of her rescuer, she must have teetered again on the brink, fearing she would fall back into that fear and desperation and darkness. She didn't want to fall back into that into that horror. But Jesus was gone, so how could things ever again be right? Mary had arranged to meet some of her friends. You know, before Jesus, she probably had no friends. 
It was he who introduced her to these women, and now she couldn't imagine her life without them. She arranged to meet them very early on that first Sunday after the crucifixion so that they could walk together to the tomb. On the way, someone remembered about that stone. It may have been rolled into place, and they began to worry that they wouldn't be able to finish the burial procedure. But when they arrived, they found the tomb open and the stone lying weirdly off on one side. One of the women bent down to enter the tomb and then turned back almost as if she'd been struck. With panic in her voice, she called the others, He's not here. His body's missing. He's gone. While the other woman stood around in shock, Mary said something like, I'm going to go get Peter. And she hurried off to tell the apostles that the body of Jesus was missing. While she was on her way, the women who remained were met by angelic messengers. But Mary didn't know anything about that. When she reached the house where Peter and the others were, she was out of breath and hardly could make it clear what had happened. When they finally understood, Peter took off running and John followed. And then Mary, winded, with aching legs, a pain in her side, she turned around and walked slowly back to the garden. When she got there, there was no one there. The women, her friends, they were all gone. Peter and John, having found the tomb empty, had left. Mary's body was weary, but I bet her mind was racing. Perhaps she was fearing that she would fall back into that darkness of her past and maybe be lost there. Her thoughts were racing in probably five directions at once. What would become of her now that Jesus was gone? Was her mind going to slip back into that darkness? And why hadn't her friends waited for her at the tomb? Would she even have her friends now? It was Jesus who held them together. Would they turn their backs on her? And where was Jesus' body? Had they, whoever they might be, had they taken it in order to do something horrible to it, some final unspeakable indignity? She bent down and looked into the tomb, and she began to cry, and cry hysterically. She was shaking, and the tears that filled her eyes were spilling over and running down her cheeks. That's when she heard someone talking. She looked back into the dark tomb, but she couldn't see clearly because her eyes were so full of tears. There seemed to be two men in there, and one of them was asking her, why are you crying? And all she could think to say was, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. She stepped back and straightened up and then took a step or two away from the tomb into the garden, and through her tears, she saw another man standing there. A moment ago, the garden was empty, or so she thought, how did all these people get here? This other man, like the first two, asked her, why are you crying? And she, supposing that he was the guy who took care of the garden, said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. It's probably a silly thing to say, but she wasn't thinking very clearly. And then she heard a voice that she knew a voice that she loved, the voice that had once spoken her name when she was in deep and demonic darkness. It was at that time she had heard the voice say to her, Mary. And now, once again, 
that speaks her name, Mary. It was Jesus' voice. Another problem solved, another question answered, or perhaps forgotten altogether. Once again, the resurrection solved the problem and answered the question. We have problems and questions too. Some of them may not be answered in this life. But the resurrection will solve the problem and answer the question. The other question I want us to think about is the one asked by the angels and addressed to the women who had come to finalize the preparations for burial. They had come with Mary Magdalene. Now, three years before, they could not have imagined that Mary would be their friend. Now they couldn't imagine life without her. She was fun. She was spontaneous. She was deeply loving. When they reached the tomb and found the stone rolled away, they were initially encouraged. They could finish the burial procedures. But something wasn't right. The stone wasn't merely wedged in place above the entrance of the tomb, like it should have been. It was cast aside. The word that's used in John's gospel suggests it was lifted right out of its track. That stone would roll down a track in front of the tomb. Who could have done that? And when one of the women looked into the tomb and realized with a shock that the body of Jesus wasn't there, then they all knew that something was wrong. Something unexpected had happened, maybe unspeakable. Mary, spontaneous as she was, turned on her heels and just took off running to tell Peter and the others. A couple of the other women tried to follow her but quickly fell behind and had to walk. Mary was just too fast for them. The rest of the women stayed in the garden. Eventually, they entered the tomb, and when they did, they saw something that shook them deeply. There were two men inside, but not ordinary men. Their clothes gleamed like lightning. Now think about that for a moment, like lightning. They were so bright, in fact, the women could not look directly at them. They exuded power and strength and something else, joy. The women knew that they were in the presence of great spiritual beings, of angels, and they bowed their faces to the ground. Their hearts had momentarily stopped beating, but now they were making up for it, pounding in their chests like a blacksmith's hammer. They were breathing fast and shallow and even feeling faint when one of the angels, or perhaps both of them, in some kind of otherworldly harmony, asked the third question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Of all the wrong places to look for Jesus, It'd be like looking for your cell phone in the microwave or your circular saw in the medicine cabinet. If you, it'd be like looking for a sailor in the desert or Hillary Clinton at the, the county Republican Party meeting. <laughs> if you want to find Jesus, why would you look for him among the dead? Jesus is quintessentially the living one. Years after the resurrection, when Jesus spoke to the apostle John, he told him, I am the living one. I was dead, and look, I am alive forever and ever. He died, but death couldn't hold him. As St. Peter put it, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And how could it? He is, Peter says, the author of life. 
life, the, the life of the world was in him. That's what St. John tells us. He gives life. He gives it abundantly, and he gives it to whom he's pleased to give it. That's the very reason he came down from heaven, we're told, so that he might give life to the world. We give gifts, you know, clothing or electronics or flowers. If we have enough money, we might even give cars and estates and endowments. But we can't give life. Jesus can. He gives it out like candy at a party. He is the author of life. The life he gives isn't merely biological. Biological life has an expiration date. Your life is stamped with an expiration date. Someday the heart monitor line will go flat, brain waves will cease, blood pressure will be gone, and death will put an end to biological life. But the life Jesus gives laughs at death. It conquers the grave. Just as it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, it's impossible for death to keep its hold on those to whom he's given life. Why do you look for that one? the living one among the dead. But that's a mistake people make again and again and again. They look in dead churches and dead tomes and dead prayers, but they're not going to find Jesus there. That's because he's alive. Jesus is where the action is. It was only on rare occasions that Jesus was ever around dead people And they didn't stay dead. You won't find the living one with the dead, so don't bother looking there. Look where the action is. Well, how do I know where that might be? How do I know where to find him? Where the living one will be waiting? The angels reminded the women on that morning of what Jesus had told them more than once that he would be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And when the angels told them that, they remembered. Mark tells us that the angels went further and said, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. Before he was crucified, he had told them all, look, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. If they had remembered what he had said and obeyed his instruction, they would have been headed to Galilee with joyful hearts and would have found him there. I think the same principle applies to us. We're not dealing with a dead Savior, but a living Lord. When you're dead, there's not a whole lot for you to do, but Jesus is alive, and he has a great deal to do, and he's doing it. If you want to find him, go where he is and get involved in what he's doing. When we get in trouble, we often beg Jesus to get involved in our lives. You know what? And because he's so wonderful, he frequently does. I would guess that many of us in this room found Jesus in our troubles. But even better than asking him to get involved in our lives is getting involved in his, paying attention to his words, doing what he's told us to do. The quickest way to find Jesus is to act on what you know he's told you. 
that works, and it works extremely well. And sometimes it works immediately. Jesus is found in life, in real life, everyday life. But too often, we don't let Jesus into our everyday lives. And sometimes I think we don't even want him there. We feel more comfortable with him on the cross taking care of our sins than in our workplace taking care of our business or in our schools taking care of how we live. We don't let Jesus into our everyday life, and yet we expect him to be waiting for us on Sunday morning in our religious lives. But if you don't find the living one in everyday life, or let me put it this way, If you won't be found by the living one in everyday life, you won't find him hanging around in your religious life either. That's just not how it works. So if you want to find Jesus, as you once found him, or perhaps as you've never yet found him, look where he is. Look in real life. Pay attention to his words, to his instruction. He's alive, and you'll find him in the midst of life. Would you like to find Jesus? Then call out to him. Say this, Jesus, help me. That's not a very theologically accurate prayer, but it's a really, really good one. Jesus, help me. I want to come out of my sins and into your life. I want to find you. Lord, take your place in my life. And help me know how to take my place in yours. I'm ready to do what it takes to know you. Pray that prayer. Let's bow our heads. And I'm going to give you a moment. Maybe you need to pray that prayer right now. And if all you can say is, Jesus, help me, that's a great start. God, your wisdom astounds us. And we have not fathomed it at all. But your plans are bigger than our minds. You have rescued us through your son in in the most unimaginable way, through his death and then through his defeat of death. And we praise you. Lord, help us to live in the light of life, in the fullness of what you've done with the resurrection life of Jesus. We bless your name through the one who is alive forever and ever, Jesus, our Lord. Amen.